Republicans are seen as taking care of the economy better because they are better at telling the story that they're on your side. Increasingly, there's this giant band between that poverty threshold and the top 10%, and those people can't survive. We don't talk about economic policy in terms of what is best for the broad swath of America. Right. Medicare for all is centrism. Raising the overtime threshold to include the bottom 80% of workers is centrism. Moving the minimum wage up to the median wage is centrism. Right. These are centrist ideas because they will unambiguously improve the lives of the median family, which should be our goal. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Jessen Farrell, Senior Vice President at Civic Ventures and former state legislator from Northeast Seattle. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. Nick, do you remember that day that we had a staff meeting in your office and you had this yardstick sitting on your couch? What was that all about? (laughs) Yeah, the yardstick was this super uh, useful prop uh, that we've used a bunch of times and have even like brought to meetings with politicians to demonstrate the difference between ideological centrism and true centrism. And the, the reason the yardstick is so useful is that it's a really easy visual metaphor for people to figure out what, what it means to talk about the center. If you take a normal yardstick, and if you were to imagine putting every single American on that yardstick, from the very poorest person on the left all the way to the very richest person, and you were to try to find the center of that uh, yardstick, if you go by weight, by pounds, <laughs> you would find the center right in the middle, about 18 inches. But if you were to find the center, the fulcrum of that yardstick based on wealth shares and put 50% of the wealth on one side and 50% of the wealth on the other or 50% of the income on one side and 50% of the income on the other side, you would find the balance point, the fulcrum, about three-fifths of an inch from the right. It's sort of, you know, more than... 35 and a half inches. And so the, like the literal visual that you had was you yes. were holding the yardstick, you yeah. know, on your couch <laughs> and you were like pointing yeah. at the far end. Yeah, as exactly. That's what we're thinking of. Exactly. As- and we call that the neoliberal yardstick, which finds the center, centrism, balancing the economic interests of the people who own half the wealth, which is about 35 and a half inches from the right, against the economic interests of everyone else in the economy uh, on the left. And that's what passes for centrism or what Howard Schultz likes to call moderate economic policies, which is to say what we're going to continue to do is the same vicious, exploitive, trickle-down policies which have enriched the few and impoverished the many. Um, And occasionally we'll throw a bone to poor people at the very bottom of the economic spectrum. What that version of centrism does is it leaves out the people basically in the middle eight deciles or largely in the bottom nine Almost decibels. everybody else. <laughs> and makes rich people richer and everybody else poor. 
And thus, this great literal <laughs> metaphor was yeah. born. So we've been yeah. using that as, as a way to think about stuff. And I, in reflecting on some of the work that I've done as a legislator, I was part of the negotiating team on the paid family leave bill. And yeah. the impulse always is to start on that far end, or, or rather, I should put it this way, to start in the middle, which is to say that we're representing, we have an idea that represents the vast majority. And over time in the legislative process, it gets whittled down and whittled down, and the so-called compromise or centrist position ends up being that thing that doesn't benefit the vast majority of people in the state. And you see that happen over and over, over again. Over and over and over again, right? And so what's really interesting is that in our heads, as we think about politics and economics, we've persuaded ourselves that centrism means just a little bit. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? Just, just do a little tiny little bit. As opposed to the whole thing, yeah. almost or, the whole thing. Or a policy that helps just a few people. That's right. centrist. And, and a great example of that is that if we raise the minimum wage just a tiny bit from seven twenty-five an hour to say eight dollars or nine dollars, that's centrism. Right. And raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour or even twenty dollars an hour, that's crazy lefty. That's right. And and I guess our point is nothing could be further from the truth. If you raise the minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour, it would benefit Almost, I think about 65% of Americans today earn less than $20 an hour, maybe less than 70% of Americans. And so in that sense, because the policy would benefit 7 in 10 Americans, that seems like centrist to me, right? Like right. that's benefiting the people at the center of the economic spectrum. Another great example is that one of our favorite policy issues is the overtime threshold, right? right? So today it benefits just 7% of salaried employees, people who make below $23,600 a year. Um, a, you know, sort of the uh, orthodox way of thinking, the neoliberal way of thinking about centrism would be to raise it from $23,600 to what the Trump administration just did to 35000 uh, benefiting, you know, 15% of American workers or 20% of American workers. But what true centrism would be is to move the threshold up where it benefits 60 or 70 or 80% of Americans to the 70000 or even $80,000 level. And so what we've got to get people to recognize is that economic policies that directly benefit the vast majority of citizens, that's true centrism. And old, it builds like broad political popularity and support of the idea. Right. By the way, this truer way of thinking about centrism is both great economics, but it's also great politics because yeah. if you're a politician and you're talking about policies that benefit eight or seven uh, out of 10 of the people that you bump into every day, uh, well, that's great politics. And again, I think one of the reasons that so many people today justly uh, believe that Democrats are feckless corporate stooges too is that we really haven't as a party stood for anything other than policies that generally make rich people richer and occasionally will throw a bone to yeah. poor people. Yeah, I can think of two really concrete examples in the in the state legislature. In Washington state, there was a time when public college education was affordable for almost everybody. When I was at the University of Washington in the mid-90s, my quarterly tuition was $690 a quarter, Yeah. right? And so that's broadly accessible for most people. And over time, it went way up. 
And one of the big scandals in 2014, in the 2014 session, is that the Republicans had proposed a tuition cut. And the Democrats felt so scooped by it because they were the Republicans weren't supposed to be the people who were advocating Mm -hmm. for the middle class. But Democrats were so reflexively unable to think about policy from that broad base. What is it that's going to help the most people? And certainly affordable college tuition is one of those things. But we just could not think about it that way. So, Justin, you raised a great example of the Democratic Party being on the wrong side of an issue. And I want to just acknowledge that I often am too partisan in this podcast. I often equate being a Democrat as being a good person and being a Republican as being a bad person. And that's that's nonsense. Certainly, it is true that the Republican Party has gone off the rails in many, many ways. But we should, you know, clearly acknowledge that as Democrats, we have done a terrible job over the last 40 years in taking care of the economic interests of most people. And the point of the podcast isn't to promote Democrats. It's to promote economic ideas that people in both the Democratic and Republican Party uh, can embrace to make people's lives better. And, you know, you just raised a great example of a place where Republicans were probably on the right side yeah, they of the got issue it right. and Democrats weren't. And I certainly feel like I need to be more careful in the podcast to not be so overtly partisan, even though I strongly believe that at this moment in time, Democrats are on the right side of most of these issues and Republicans are just sort of reflexively on the wrong side. Except, you know, Republicans are seen as taking care of the economy better. And I think part of that is because they are better at telling the story that they're on your side. They're on my side. Well, or they are literally on your side. (laughs) Sorry, that's not a good one. But, you know, on the side of the middle class. Right. And whether or not that's true. Part of it is that we don't talk about economic policy in terms of what is best for the broad swath of Americans. And that's your point about centrism. That's right. And putting a lie to the claim that if you're making rich people richer, that's better for everybody. And the Republicans have been great at telling this trickle-down story, the neoliberal story, that what's good for rich people is good for everyone. And that theory of growth beats no theory of growth, which is where the Democratic Party has been for a very long time. And so that brings me back to that day in the office where you had brought this yardstick and we were all scratching our heads, wondering what you were doing with the yardstick. And you started talking about this idea of the center being the thing that benefits the vast majority of people. And from that coming this article, Democrats must reclaim the center by moving hard left. Yeah, that we did in Politico in August, which you should read, dear listeners. It's a great article. Google that. Democrats must uh, reclaim the center by moving hard left. Exactly. And then how far we've come, right? So we put this idea out into the world and now we are debating, is Bernie Sanders a centrist? One might argue (laughs) free college, free community college, free college. That's a centrist. Yeah. Free health care, Medicare for all or health care for all. centrist. Centrist. Yeah. Yeah, we have come far. We have come far. Yeah. And so today we get to talk to our friend Pramila Jaipal, who's one of the most remarkable members of Congress, who definitely understands 
these issues of centrism in a way that few people do. Yeah, she is just a complete rock star as the first Indian American woman to serve in the House of Representatives. She is the first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She is one of the best organizers in the country. Yeah. You've seen it on her work um, on local issues, That's whether right. it's and raising long, the minimum wage. A longtime collaborator of ours exactly. here in Seattle. Yep. On and you see it on her work in Congress, yeah. organizing those Congress people into having a really strong progressive stance and a strong progressive institutional mechanism, which she has really invigorated and worked towards. It's really exciting to see her. So we're just going to begin to chat. Yeah. And this is going to be both a podcast and a catch up. (laughs) Okay. 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 Pramila and I go way back. Uh, We did a lot of fun things together over the years in Seattle, where she's from, uh, among them the $15 minimum wage. And uh, I should just say that it was really, that that was a journey. (laughs) It was a journey and a learning experience. And for my own part, you know, one of the things that I was, as I reflect back on that experience, you love to think about what you thought was right and what was wrong and where you were wrong. And one of the, one of the ways in which I was most wrong were my views on tipped workers. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. And you know, I uh, came into that conversation, into that effort feeling pretty strongly that tipped workers should be treated differently than other workers and Pramila and uh, a, a bunch of other people strongly disagreed with me. And uh, I, I could think I can say safely and confidently now that I was dead wrong about that. <laughs> I think that's pretty amazing. I mean, I just feel like, it, you know, we're fortunate to have you in the region and to be able to have this conversation around not just what is the right policy, but also what is the right language. And we've used some of your, you know, I've been testing the centrist, uh, centrist idea and taking back the use of the word centrist, which you wrote an excellent essay on. And... Um, you know, and I'm constantly trying to tweak it, but I think that's the that's the value of these conversations. And 15, I feel like there isn't even a conversation now here in Congress that 15 is the right level. Yeah. And that's, you know, like high five on that because we totally, we did that. And um, uh, not we, just you and me, but we the movement and fast food workers and low wage workers across the country who have changed the reality and... So I'm here in Congress because I believe that if politics is the art of the possible, then our role is to try to push the boundaries of what is seen as possible. I just wrote a piece on the working poor, and I was thinking about this idea that really what we have to do is transform the way we think about workers so that workers are not the drain on companies, but they are the valued engine of profitability and growth for companies. And that, and then taking your same narrative again, but th- that is a, a dynamic shift in how we see workers because people say, oh no, we can't increase the minimum wage or we can't give people benefits or we can't do this or we can't pay overtime because it's too expensive. But no, actually, you don't get growth if you don't have workers who are driving that growth. And so the profits have to be shared in a very different and equitable fashion than they have been. Absolutely. And I think uh, what you're talking about is strictly not neoliberalism, I would say. (laughs) Right. So, uh, you know, one of the most profound lessons of organizing for the $15 minimum wage, just 
sort of pathetically obvious when you consider it is that contrary to a lot of instincts from activists on the left, in a weird way, the farther we went, the easier it got. Mm -hmm. This is one of the profound lessons of the $15 minimum wage is you can't have a fight for seven seventy-five. dollars Right. Totally. I yeah. totally agree yeah. with you. It's yeah. like, and now, you know, we've, we, I mean, 15 felt far at the time, but it's really not far enough, it's, right? I mean, if wages had kept pace with inflation, we would be at 21, 22, and depending on what state you're in, more than that. And so. Right. But, you know, if you raise the minimum wage from seven twenty-five, which is the federal minimum to seven seventy-five, you help a few people in the bottom one or two deciles. Uh, in 2012, when we first started talking about this, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour included the bottom 45% of workers or right. something like that. It may have been slightly more. So you absolutely have people's attention. And that lesson has turned into a new conversation that you and I have had about what the true meaning of centrism is. Because what 40 years of neoliberalism taught us, taught the Democratic Party, if we're being honest, is that centrism is found when you balance the economic interests of the richest people who hold 50% of the income against everyone else in the country who owns the other 50% of the income. Well, and this came about um, because I think I was at a conference where I was talking about how these progressive policies aren't really progressive. They're, I mean, I'm proud to be called a progressive, but they're not radical. And I think you said, no, they're actually centrist because they serve the center of the country. Why should centrism mean that the top 1% or the wealthiest corporations are getting all of the benefit? Why wouldn't centrism Centrism mean serving the center. And I love that because I was an English major in college and I was thinking about etymology and I'm like, yeah, centrist should mean center. And so I've been um, taking that around the country and trying that. I used it as speech in Iowa. I've used it in some places and um, we, we still have to tweak it a little bit. But I think um, so the opportunity of that is that uh, there is a fair amount of research that shows that people love these progressive ideas, whatever you want to call them, right? These these ideas we're talking about, minim raising the minimum wage, overtime pay. Yeah, fair wages, fair wages. reasonable health care costs, affordable right. college, a decent place to live that doesn't bankrupt you. It's so weird how right. people prefer those I mean, things. It's, it's amazing, right? And it's not just progressives or young people. It's actually Republicans Everybody. and independents. Everybody. And everyone wants the same thing. And sometimes there is this push to say, well, this person is progressive, but you know, I started a Medicare for All pack, and I actually endorsed a couple of people who are not in the Progressive Caucus, but ran on Medicare for All. And I think we do have to think about, you know, and there are some people who are like, no, don't say centrist, because that's talking about the centrism that is. But we've reclaimed a lot of words in our narrative. Yeah. I mean, we've done that on racial justice. We've done that on so many things. We can reclaim this and make centrism mean center serving the center not serving that fulcrum at right. the end and and you know like we we of course need to always be thinking about taking care of the least that the most disadvantaged people in our society but it is a terrible political policy and economic mistake to make the rich richer every day and occasionally throw a bone to the very poor right. I, 
our policies should directly, unambiguously, and significantly improve the lives of the bottom nine deciles of Americans who have been left out of the last 40 years of economic growth. And to me, that's what centrism is. Medicare for all is centrism. Raising the overtime threshold to include the bottom 80% of workers is centrism. Moving the minimum wage up to the median wage is centrism. These are centrist ideas because they will unambiguously improve the lives of the median family, which should be our goal. Right. And so much of what's happened as inequality has grown is that, yes, we have these programs that serve the most vulnerable, the poorest, and we need to have those. But increasingly, there's this giant band between that poverty threshold and the top 10%. And those people can't survive. They have been forgotten. They have been forgotten. And if you look at the statistic that I, that keeps me up at night is 62% of Americans don't even have $1,000 in their bank account. 45% of Americans can't even deal with a $400 emergency. That's a leak you know, in your roof. That's your car breaks down. That's your kid gets sick and you have to take a couple days off from work and you don't live in Washington state where you get paid medical leave. It's any of those things. And so this anxiety is ever present for 90% of people. And for me, that also is the opening for then the blaming that somebody like Donald Trump taps into, right? Because he taps into working people who feel like they've sort of been doing everything right. Like they got a job, they're working 40 hours a week. Now more and more, they're working two jobs. You know, they don't have money to send their kids to college. Um, because education is so costly now. Um, they are worried about their Social Security because they're afraid it's going to be cut. They're one healthcare crisis away from bankruptcy. Housing has gone through the roof. They can't pay for housing. And they're like, wait a second, you want to talk about immigrants? What about me? You know, and so it leads to this, this place where people get divided. And I think the more we can point out that the only people that benefit from any of the rhetoric, the divisive rhetoric, or the cuts to Social Security or any of these things are the people at the very yeah. top. Very rich people, for sure, myself included, I should add. Well, that's uh, why it's so unusual, because you're willing to say that. And I will say that there there are, and we have some of these folks in, in Washington state, a lot of really wealthy people who don't want to have this either. They yeah. know that your future is not going to be good yeah. if, if we devolve into a country where literally only 10% of the people, if that, have opportunity. Yeah. If America falls apart, it will suck to be rich, too. Yeah, there'll be a revolution. (laughs) There will be a revolution. And guess who's going to be the target of that? Exactly. (laughs) So how do we talk the Democratic Party and ideally a bunch of the Republican Party Mm. into this notion that the purpose of politics is to unambiguously improve the lives of the median family? Like, I would just admit that I'm about to have dinner with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of people to talk about the future of the Democratic Party in one of these big dinners. What should I say to them? Well, I think you should, first of all, point out that people won across the country and we took control of the House because of bold ideas, not because anyone was talking about a 25 cent increase to the minimum wage, but because people were talking about, even in swing districts, ideas like Medicare for all. I think you should talk about the centrism of these ideas. I think you should talk about the fact that 
we have a situation of crisis where people don't trust either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party because there's so much money in politics. Now, it'll be awkward because you'll be at a dinner where, which yeah. is, you know, about donors to the Democratic Party. But I think that, you know, we have some big pieces of legislation around anti-corruption. But I also think, for me, I don't know if this is something you want to say tonight, but for me... Um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is think about how you use elected office to to drive a conversation and to drive a narrative versus following a bunch of polling that is often not useful, but also not just, right? Because, because if you look at, and not that I want us to do what Trump is doing, but if you look at what Trump does, he just has a narrative and then he pushes it out there. You know, after the Kavanaugh hearings, all of a sudden it was all about the unfairness to Kavanaugh. He didn't care about the polling. The polling did not say that at all. But he used his bully pulpit to frame and change the narrative. How do we as Democrats get bolder about actually framing a narrative? Because I think for a lot of people, and I see it even in our district, for people that aren't up as up on the issues as you are, um, people look to me and to this office and to us for a frame. How do we think about this problem? How do we think about the border? How do we think about immigration? How do we think about healthcare? So we have a real opportunity to use our platforms to really drive a narrative. And that, in some ways, is one of the biggest things that I think um, Democrats need to need to harness is to be bold and to, to understand that our wins did not come from people having incremental positions, even in districts that elected swing, uh, you know, or, or more conservative Democrats. It was indivisibles that turned out. It was black women. It was young people. It was people who were excited about potentially not even that candidate, but maybe a candidate up ticket, maybe a Stacey Abrams, maybe a Beto O'Rourke. And so the analysis has to be right. And the analysis has to take us towards um, the country is moving to common sense slash progressive slash centrist in our meaning of the word um, proposals, transformations in, in our economy. One other thing, um, we've got to pay attention to monopolies, antitrust, corporate buybacks. I mean, if you look at what has happened with inequality, um, when we stopped enforcing the no corporate buyback um, rules, you really saw inequality increase dramatically. And instead of money going into wages for workers, it went into these stock buybacks. And so um, I think that there, there are a few different pieces here that Democrats have been unwilling to take on, but we really have to take on antitrust monopoly stuff. Yeah. Pramila, am I crazy to think that if... Democrats, or frankly, any elected official, just did more for their constituents, they would need less from their from their donors. I mean, isn't that the problem with the Democratic Party? Is it, It's been so long since we made a big difference in people's lives that they see Democrats as feckless corporate stooges, too, which is fair, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um you know, I tell everybody who comes in as a new member that constituent services is one of the most important things you can do. And and we got back $1.5 million for our constituents. We helped over 800 people. It was crazy. Like, just having my name in a, on a letter helps people navigate the system. But I also think it's, it's about 
you know, we have work to do to really leverage the power of the progressive movement. Uh, I just got elected the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. We have more progressive members than we've ever had before. 40% of the caucus are members of the CPC. We just set up the CPCC, this 501c3 and C4 that can be this intersection between the outside organizing and the inside organizing. You saw that work a little bit with the speakers. We were able to work with the outside groups to sort of leverage, look, here are our asks. We realized we have very few progressives on most of the exclusive committees. That's where the decisions get made, ways and means, appropriations we were not bad on, energy and commerce, no, hardly anybody, financial services, one person left, you know, intelligence, one person left. So we worked with the progressive groups and said, hold your endorsement, let us get proportional representation, plus a few other things. and. We will use our power. We will leverage our power. And we can do that with our donors as well. You know, we really want to see the Democratic Party move in a way that really addresses this. And by the way, it's not identity politics versus economics. That frame just drives me nuts. Um, And so we just have to keep pushing back on that because I think there are a lot of people who are afraid to talk about race, a lot of people who think that these are ancillary questions. Don't get into the immigration questions. Well, you know what? It's been put on the table by the president. So, (laughs) you know, good luck not getting into them. Um, So, I mean, that's all the work we have to do. and, And I am excited about it because I feel like we have this real opportunity to leverage the outside, the inside, donors, you know, powerful ideas that are out there, and just to seize that narrative. Well, Pramila, thank you so much for being with us today. Super fun to be in your snazzy office. (laughs) Nick, thank you for everything you do and for the ideas and for the vision and the passion um, of the work. Thank you. So it was super fun to get to chat with Pramila in her offices in Washington, D.C. And how awesome is it to have somebody so clear-sighted representing us in Congress? Yeah, we're so lucky here in the 7th to have her. And one of the things that she has done so well throughout her career is to take a norm and move it you know, that renorming of what a minimum wage should look like, renorming of what tipped workers should have access to. Right. That's really been one of the things she's been good at. Yeah. And I'm really interested in how she looks at elective office as part of that. Too often, elective officials are running around chasing after polls and not leading and pushing, but she really sees her role as an elected person as part of that renorming and and shifting the narrative. And I think that part's really interesting. Exactly. And thinking about centrism in this much broader way as it's not centrist unless it directly benefits the broad majority of citizens, including the people in the middle, you know, middle deciles and all the way up into the ninth decile. You know, that gives permission for people thinking about economic policy to be far bolder than we've ever been before and to just finally acknowledge that what people like Howard Schultz think of as centrism, which is just the same ridiculous exploitive policies that make rich people richer and everybody else poor, aren't centrist. They're just radical trickle-down economics, and we need to put them behind right. us. Right, and it's not like Howard Schultz has shown himself to be a super adept politician in, nope. his, in his rollout. And what... I really think about the centrist idea is that 
you get this great intersection of great policy and great politics. Like right. it is good for a politician to be on the side of almost everybody, <laughs> yes, right? Like exactly. I don't know how any politician can say that this is not a good idea, except for the fact that a lot of politicians are bought and yeah. you know purchased by corporations and all that good right. stuff, and, and it's people. very threatening, right? That's right. And so if you have the mechanisms <laughs> on the outside to organize people, you're able to counter that, and you're able to. I think, create the conditions for politicians to do, again, not just right by everybody, but really is in their own self-interest in doing things that are broadly popular. That's what is so great about this. It's just so perfectly self-interested, plus... The, you know, the greatness of doing something that benefits a lot yeah. of people. And, you know, for our listeners out there, I mean, as you reflect on these ideas, you know, we encourage you to think more carefully about what it means to be moderate or centrist and to push back on people who claim the mantle of centrism or moderation because they're simply promoting the same ideas that have made rich people richer and everyone else poor over the last couple of decades. You know, these people aren't being moderate. They're being orthodox. Yeah, or they're, exactly, that's right. <laughs> that's that's right, they're being the extremists. Thing. They're being yeah. extremists. Yeah. To be only on the side of corporations or the very wealthy yeah, is an extremist not, position, that's not, right. a central, not a centrist position. And it's not moderate either, even though it may feel like that or seems like that, or certainly that they, they say that's what they're being. These two things have nothing to do with one another. Speaking of not moderate, in our next episode, we get to talk to a really remarkable woman who's at the leading edge of monetary policy, something called MMT or modern monetary policy, Dr. Stephanie Kelton, who will take us through those ideas and open up new possibilities of how we can get some important things done. Fork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening.